Hello and welcome. I'm Wendy Lloyd and this is Open to Criticism. Each week I'm joined by a guest to discuss how we talk about movies, who gets to do it and why it matters. This week we unpack the role of social media influencers and how they've become a key part of film promotion. I feel like a lot of critics don't even use Instagram. They don't know how to make something that looks vibrant. Remember, the the PR is somebody who's between 25 and 35 most of the time. They're the ones looking at these lists. If you're not visible to them, then why would they invite you? Publicists are using influencers with hefty follower numbers to raise online awareness of new film releases, particularly blockbusters and big franchise films. But does this mean that critics are being pushed aside and having their access to preview screenings and therefore their ability to critically appraise films reduced? My guest to discuss this is freelance film, TV and culture critic Ashanti Omkar. Ashanti broadcasts regularly on the BBC, Sky News and many other big outlets and sits on several awards juries. She's also an industry influencer having recognized early the power of online media which as she explained to me was born of her pre-broadcasting tech and data career in terms of my background i come from a kind of data and analytics database consultant background in the world of tech working for people like oracle and pepsi cola and the hilton group I would class myself as a digital native in many ways. Many many critics I know aren't. And I kind of played with my first Apple Mac in Nigeria when I was 10 years old and I've lived <laughs> I know, right? I've lived my life online and uh, for me in many ways my real life persona is an extension of my online persona in, in so many ways because I am better online than I am in real life is what I feel. Not you know? true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wendy, you are so kind <laughs> saying that but you you know I'm an ambivert and you know I I I like to kind of be in my little little corner of the room people hang on, watching. Hang on, hang on. What's an ambivert? Oh, an ambivert. So you're you're in the middle of being an extrovert and an introvert. Oh, okay. So I this is where the digital world fits in with with me and and who I am. Mm. But in terms of, you know, with talking today about influencers, um that tech background that you explained, you know, it, it really was what got you understanding the power of websites and social media um before really social media um with things like MySpace I always think that's kind of pre-social media isn't it um <laughs> talk a bit about that because it sounds like you were quite prescient in terms of understanding where that would go a hundred percent, hundred percent. I had created my first website actually back back in the day when I worked in the world of tech, and people could could see my 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 email address on my website, and then they'd write to me and say, "I'm interested in da da da." And we were almost talking on internet. You know, it's a very much a Reddit type situation. We were talking on threads. Yeah. We were talking on email. People from all over the globe who were interested in certain types of music or certain types of film. I was connected with a lot of them, and then when my space came out it was a, a natural thing for me to jump onto after having had this kind of web presence and in fact i got my first journalistic job through the fact that i had this website and then my my kind of third fourth jobs came from my myspace presence because i built up a following there of like 10,000 people when myspace was at, at its peak and before facebook mm. came in and took it all over yeah. and then i maxed out my facebook like within 2 years of me joining that 
5,000 cap on friends because Facebook has evolved a lot since then because they didn't think people could have 5,000 friends. And certainly these are, these 5,000 people weren't people I knew personally, but they were people who were adding me because they were interested in what I was posting. Mm. And that was the power of social media back then. And I'm talking, you know, we're talking 15 years ago. Yeah. And that has only grown and grown and grown. And now we're in the days of, of TikTok where to be an influencer, you have to have that half a million following. And that's when you're classed as an influencer. And and those people in between, like for me, I'm more of an industry influencer in the sense that I'm talking to the industry most of the time. People who are interested in film obviously are coming to me. People who, who want to know about television or streaming, they're coming to me. But at the same time, it's a lot of industry people who are watching what I do. The influencers are the most diverse set of people because you have you'll have a black 13-year-old who's into STEM science and also likes Marvel movies. You'll have someone from up north, a black, you know, young black man who's a mixologist with two million followers on TikTok. You'll have a British Asian hijabi creator who's a fashion influencer and they want her on those red carpets. You know, she she has an interest in film and TV. Yeah. Let's dig in then to this whole thing of specifically how influencers are now very much being used when it comes to film promotion. You know, how are the PRs using them? And what's your kind of like relationship with PRs when it comes to this kind of thing? So my relationship with PR still remains very much as a critic. I do get in, in invites, influencer invites, but they're not termed as that at all. Because nowadays, uh, the, the multimedia screenings are set up for influencers and for you know, for critics. So to to just explain for audiences, yeah, multimedia is basically when they have a preview screening, often it's the week of release. And it's almost like some of them are in place of premieres now, aren't they? And it's a big event where critics will come, but also influencers, members of the media, and there may and usually is some member of the cast or production crew, you know, the director might turn up some of the stars. And it's just, it's a bit of an event, isn't it? It is. They've made them into bigger events because in in 2023, and and even for myself, and I'm certainly not the age of most of the influencers that I meet, I want an experience. If I am going to give my evening up to be at, at, at the cinema, I would like it to be an event. You're such a diva. (laughs) absolutely I feel well when you say that though I know about I've had critics tell me how back in the day if there wasn't wine at a screening some critics would walk out so (laughs) this is you know I am hardly a diva because all I want is a social media image but what they wanted was the actual hard alcohol I like the sandwiches I miss the sandwiches that's all I can say back to back to this idea of giving people an immersive experience you've probably seen this popping up you have secret cinema for example where you know I I went recently to the Bridgerton Ball where they recreated, you know, Bridgerton, the the Netflix series into a ball and they had their own cocktail bar with specially made cocktails. What they're doing now, like I was recently at the Paramount Plus Yellow Jackets um, immersive experience and my gosh, the detail they go into, not only did they create a menu that reflected the sort of food the girls from Yellow Jackets would have eaten, you know, when they were foraging in the forest... Wow. <laughs> so they go all out with this and the attention to detail 
detail that they put in, Wendy, is, is absolutely amazing. And it is an, it, it's lovely for someone like myself who's a broadcaster, because when I go on to talk about this on radio, I can give a description that's more than just what I've seen on screen. That, that immersive experience does help people like me who are broadcasters for a living, but also semi-influencers in some ways. And I, I'll be invited, though, from the press team. And this is the interesting thing, that we are all coexisting in this space. And what you'll see, and, and the, for me, the biggest difference that the industry is trying to make from the old days of those five white male critics who are still what the FDA, the Film Distributors Association, sees those five white men as the only people to in, invite to their week of release screenings. Whereas, you know, the industry has responded by saying, well, there are so many people, you know, you've got the, the Essex kids who are always smartly dressed. We want them to come, come to our screenings. These people are fashionable. We want them here. So this is an important point. So let's dig a bit more into this whole thing about the PRs. They are now inviting influencers to preview screenings. Some critics are feeling a little bit pushed out. You know, there's there's often debate within our kind of um, fellow mm. colleagues, isn't there, where there's frustration about not yeah. being able to get a ticket to go to an event. So there's a sense... Um, sometimes that PRs are choosing influencers over critics. And one can argue that, you know, you can see why they would be doing it because, you know, if a PR invites a critic to a screening, they run the risk of perhaps getting a bad review. Yes. Whereas with influencers, especially those getting paid, well, let's face it, they are less likely to say anything negative about yes. a film that they're going to online. So critics obviously, A, don't like being pushed out in that capacity. B, there is the concern that films are only discussed in positive terms and championed by people being paid for it rather than getting a kind of critical assessment. So I wonder what your thoughts are about critics' concerns there and are they valid? So I feel that their concerns are not valid because I'll tell you that the critics who are the most prominent are always at all the screenings. They always get what they're commissioned to write about or speak about. Mm. I've, I, I, I think you and I, as freelancers, we've probably experienced this. We just need to tell the distribution house or the PR. So even if the FDA doesn't invite us, we will we will still yeah. have a seat at that that screening. Yeah. We would have seen it and we would have broadcasted about it because we are seen as credible people who have credible broadcast platforms, Monocle, Times Radio, BBC, places that, that I broadcast on. If I go to them and ask them for it, I've I've never been turned down, is what I'll say. Mm. Now I don't want to sound too contentious with this, but it is the self-published critics that have this issue. Yeah. Or, or the critics who are working for an outlet that the PR company doesn't know about. If you go to them with something obscure and they don't know about it, and you don't, you can't prove your numbers, right? When you're a blogger and you're writing for yourself, how do you prove those numbers to the to the PRs? Because they will assess it against your social media cloud. Mm. And if your social media numbers are also low, how do they give you that access when they could give that to somebody with half a million followers on TikTok? They know that a fraction, even if 1% of those followers buys a ticket that's still going to be worthy to them than somebody who is a critic might have done this job for a long time but unfortunately they don't have the platform anymore. So I guess what you're saying here is that basically in the past all they had PRs to work with was you know the knowledge that there are big broadcast media platforms be they newspapers be they particular radio or television outlets now it's kind of become much more fragmented in terms yes. of where people are consuming 
reviews and, um, you know, deciding which films to go and see. So what it means is that the PRs can say, well, ultimately, we need to know that our money spent is getting out to audiences. And, you know, the social media and influencers enables them to kind of put some kind of numbers behind it, which I guess us critics often don't like to think about the commercial reality Mm. of what we're doing, do we? Yes, this is exactly it. I mean, I come from a numbers background. That's what I used to do. That's what I, you know, kind of guides me and leads me at all times. You're about the data. (laughs) I'm about the data. Exactly. (laughs) You know, at the end of the day, film is a business. The box office is what drives it. People get funded based on... On on one side, on critics. On another side, it's based on the audience versus critics issue, where you've got the aggregators picking up, you know, Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes, picking up what people like. And, and, and divide. there's almost this big divide, isn't there, between the audience and the critics. And this is this has been the case for a very, very long time. If someone like me, because I naturally work with those numbers, I will say, well, you need to look at your numbers. If you want to be invited, your numbers have to, to do, the, do the talking. On the other side, uh, the other hand, I feel like a lot of critics don't even use Instagram. They don't know how to make something that looks vibrant. That will attract somebody to inviting them because if you if you're putting up very boring content, remember the the PR is somebody who's between twenty five and thirty five most of the time. They're the ones looking at these lists. Yeah. If you're not visible to them and they can't see that you're doing something that looks creative, then why would they invite you? This is the other question to ask. Yeah, it's a really good point, isn't it? Because I think, again, we can forget, um, especially if we've been in the industry for a long time, a bit long in the tooth like me, whether you like it or not, you do have to move with the times. Another, obviously, and I kind of alluded to it before, there is obviously this issue of, well, the problem with influencers in terms of what they're actually providing the audiences with in terms of, you know, credible information about a film um, are they providing anything credible? Because if they just go, oh, hey, wow, this film's amazing, there's not any critical insight there. And again, I think that's what critics end up thinking, that they get pushed out for people who are paid to champion a film and be positive about it, come what may. Is that valid? It, you know, to be very honest, the influencers that I have kept tabs on, they will only tell you that they've attended. They're fashionable enough to attend. Mm. It's like going to the Met Gala or it's like, you know, in, in Evening Standard, you'll see those pages with those, you know, the cool people in London. And it's about what they wear. It's where they're seen. What's the coolest spot to be at? And this is exactly the model that the film industry has adopted to get these cool people to come to their films. What these cool people are doing is very rarely giving you any kind of critique because they know the critics exist. They're not called on television to give comment. Right. They are they're there because they've got probably bigger numbers than who's watching television these days. Yeah. So they, so they'll go 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 on to this and it's like here I am, I'm at the Black Panther premiere. Here I am. I'm at the Super Mario Bros, you know, multimedia screening. They've got these really cool bits for me to 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 have photos with. You know, for somebody like me, I've adapted to it because I was always doing it. Even back in the day, I'm very pictorial. I'm very much into the images and visuals. But a lot of critics I know aren't. And I think this is where there's a huge disparity between how the critics are evolving their careers and how the influencer space has just just taken over. And the influencers really don't need to even give us any kind of critique just because the people who follow them want to know what they're doing. Where where are they going? What are they watching? And, And they don't even need to say anything. They just need to be there, show up, 
and then a fraction of their, you know, and, and when I say a fraction, that 1% of half a million people, all they have to do is to buy a ticket and see the film for themselves, judge for themselves whether they like it or not. Yeah. So this is how this, this ecosystem is working. Yeah, no, that makes sense because I suppose then it's about in, in, this initial kind of a, a explosion of awareness. Yes. Then if somebody wants to find out something more, arguably they can then go and read a review. And it's interesting because, of course, you therefore do both because you post <laughs> in an influencing capacity and yes. then you go on radio and television and you will discuss it in a critical capacity. So you are able to straddle both both areas, aren't you? Absolutely. And I, I believe that anyone can, if they made that extra effort, anyone who's a digital native can do this very easily. If they've lived on the internet for so long, you know, social media is just an extension of their personality. It's it's much easier for, for them to do it than for those who never adapted to, to that. Because the amount of critics, I mean, I started the Critics Circle Instagram account, <laughs> you know, when I was brought in as the first, you know, first Asian woman to be in the Critics circle from 1913 up until I think 2017 when I joined there was you know the one there was no Instagram account two there wasn't even an Asian person at the critic circle mm. who was a woman so it's very interesting to see how there are so many bits to the industry that fit into place and I love the fact that you've tapered this conversation around this because for me this is about the fact that influencers they flip this narrative they are beyond class and color because criticism has been about class and color for so long Hasn't it just? <laughs> As you know, and gender, I have to say, and Absolutely, gender. Yeah. These are the three aspects that have taken over the world of criticism. And even to date, I mean, I will challenge the FDA, the Film Distributors Association, to come and talk to you and I about this, because why is it people like us who are broadcasters are not on those lists and considered in that kind of top critics list who, who they deem fit? Because we are not employed by you know, I, I don't know, The Guardian, let's say. We're not employed by a broadsheet. And those rules were very much made in the old days of Fleet Street. Yes. And there is an yes. element of, could you please come <laughs> kicking and screaming into the 21st century, please? That would be really nice. Exactly, because we have figures, right? We have yeah. the radar figures. We have the barb figures. We can prove how much we are contributing to this industry as freelancers, but they are not ready to receive yet. And I hope that a podcast like this can change perceptions. That is the idea, my dear, which is why I'm very glad to have you on here talking about this. Um, so in terms of then for you personally, what do you, I know obviously say you say you enjoy it, but in terms of professionally speaking, in your capacity as an influencer, when you're at these events posting, what do you then get out of that professionally? How does that work for you? Uh, well, this, you know, this is a question. It's almost an existential question that you've asked me, Wendy, because I've been <laughs> thinking about this deeply. <laughs> I have had such a, an interesting career trajectory from doing consulting work to working with the trades to working, you know, w working now as purely a broadcaster. And I've had to evolve and, and change a lot. And, and for me, I mean, I get the enjoyment of being there. I have to say, so when you are at these events, you always feel that buzz, mm. you know, and when you go to a critic screening, it's completely completely different. And I'm sometimes I prefer the critics screenings in some instances where it's all quiet. You're there on a Monday morning at nine o'clock, you watch the film, you may talk to one or two people on your way out. And that's it. You're in your head. Yeah. You have thought about the film. You can really critically assess it without other people's opinions. You know, I don't like to read reviews before I see a film, you know. Absolutely. That's one of the privileges of being a critic is that we do get to see them before other critics have seen them as well. Exactly. But I suppose the thing is, what I guess 
guess, works for you in this is that you post as an influencer, you're at those events, and I guess it shows to broadcast outlets and what have you that you've seen it and perhaps you get bookings off the back of it. Uh, Perhaps. This is also something I'm very interested in learning about. And I haven't been able to quite work that out yet, because a lot of the time, I think it's because I have been around for so long that people know me, producers know me. This seems to be the way it still works. I don't think there's kind of a, a database or that necessarily that they're looking at my socials for this, but perhaps they are. Mm. It's something that, again, I'm trying to assess and work out. You know, is is that the way they're, they're booking me? Perhaps. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> One of those things, it's always worth asking, isn't it? Why did you book me? Because as a freelancer, it's helpful to understand if there's a pattern that you can tap into. But I wonder, you know, when it comes to the PRs again, bearing in mind that they are inviting you both sometimes in an influencer and critic capacity. To be honest, Wendy, they're not necessarily in, in inviting me as an influencer. This is okay. what I feel. Right. Whilst I am an industry influencer, I don't I don't believe that I'm being invited as an influencer because I can see there's a difference in the way the influence. For example, I'll, I'll give you an example. Certain films have had booked out the whole of Cineworld Cinema. What they've done is they've put the critics in, in the IMAX and they've put the influencers in the D-Box screen. And the D-Box screen is where they get an accentuated experience because their seat moves, there's water, there's different, you know, <laughs> smells and air, you know, that's like a 4D experience yeah. that they are getting. And the influencers will be sent to that because every seat at the D-Box costs Cineworld so much to actually, you know, kind of even keep running. Right. That the, you know, the, the film houses are paying a lot more to get the influencers into that screening. So we can see the difference in the wristband, in where the influencer might be taken for a photograph, in which photograph they get with which press board. Mm. There are lots of distinctions here also that might not be so obvious when you look at my socials, but because I'm within that industry, I see it. And, you know, ultimately, like like a magazine, and the influencers are the advertorials, you know, they are providing the puff pieces. And the journalists and the critics, we delineate critical parameters and, and investigate. And, you know, then you have the academics who also do something similar. We're all, in some ways, documenting cinema and and television and and you know streaming but we're just doing it in a in a different way and the influential ways yeah and i think that's that's an interesting thing about you know the differentiation which i think as i mentioned before i think that's what influencers have they've certainly provide prs but you can argue that it does provide something for audiences because one thing that prompted me to talk about influencers and yeah. their relationship to criticism was because you know for a very long time i have pondered this sort of tension between the way that critics scrutinise on your know, artistic merits of regular films and how critics obviously bring these same sensibilities to when they critique big blockbuster franchises and all, you know, all this event cinema and big family movies as well. And I was reminded of a really famous quote from the late Roger Ebert from back in 1999. And when he did his review of Pokemon the first movie, so here's Roger <laughs> Ebert reviewing Pokemon the first movie, and he said in his review... There are times here in the movie beat when I feel like I'm playing in over my head. And I thought that was wonderful because it kind of spoke to all critics at that time feeling very obliged to review a Pokemon movie and to bring with it, you know, those kind of artistic sensibilities. Um, But a Pokemon movie is sort of a big entertainment event. It's exploiting a commercial product for kids. You know, it's a million miles from the kind of films that Roger Ebert 
really wanted to be reviewing. Exactly. So I think definitely, you know, when you think about influencers, they really do serve this role for PR companies who want to promote, say, an event film, a franchise film, don't they? Because for them, those kind of critiques from Roger Ebert, well-intentioned and knowledgeably positioned, ultimately, it doesn't kind of work with those films because judging them in the way you would judge a beautiful art house film or how you'd judge Portrait of a Lady on Fire or something, it doesn't really <laughs> yes. work, does it? It, it, it doesn't. This is exactly it. You, you have this audience versus critics thing where even the scores online, when you're looking at what people like, and we, we you know, I, I spoke a lot about these, what I would call a critic-proof movie, which is the Super Mario Bros. movie, you know, they, yes. they released it at the right time. They knew they would crunch the box office like crazy because it came out at Easter. There was nothing to compete with it on the family space and families love animation. It's very easy for them to, to take their kid to something that multi-generationally they've all played at home yeah. as, as a game. They don't need to think very much. The film's only 92 minutes. I mean, these guys got everything right when it comes to, to box office magic. You know, they got everything right except for the fact that critics hated it. But then we need critics to get pe- films like Suzume from you know Sony and Crunchyroll, which is one of the most stunning animations you're going to see this year. And you want people to go out into the cinemas and watch this film. You want them to take their kids because because this is a film about a girl and it's a, a, her coming of age, dealing with the grief of lo- losing her mother. You want critics to also talk about a film like that and hope that, you know, the parents are saying, we will take them to see Mario Bros this week, but we'll also take them to see Suzume next week. Yes. This is the hope. This yes. is really the hope. And whilst film criticism is still quite elitist, and, and we know this, you know, that the women are not necessarily getting their voices out as much. The the pe- people from the LGBTQ plus community Community are not getting their voices out enough, but a lot of men are still getting a lot of voice out. They're also the majority voters yeah. at the Oscars and the BAFTAs, etc. The big difference in the industry, and it's some, in some ways I feel like the industry is just giving kind of a middle finger to the elitism and the classism that came with film critique and saying that these influencers come from, you know, the Essex background. This one comes from, from Manchester mm. and we want these people's voices because they all count as Great Britain. And this is what I feel is the biggest change in the industry in the last five years. The film industry is pushing back and saying critics are, are not the only people who are the guardians and the, you know, kind of the gatekeepers of film. That's right. Gatekeepers, tastemakers. Well, I think, I, I mean, I think, yeah, you've made, you've mentioned that a couple of times. I do think that's a really important point about the diversity of influencers. Mm. The fact that, you know, it really is uh, very democratic in a lot of ways in terms of the people that come on board. There is no elitism. There is no gatekeeping. It's if you can get yourself that number of followers, yes. you're in, basically. <laughs> you're in. Um, this is it. <laughs> but I, I would imagine that most critics, they kind of, um, these days, a film like that, um, especially because of influencers and the kind of um, very smart promotion which you mentioned there, you know, I think critics do understand that they're not shocked and surprised when they, <laughs> you know, they say, well, I mean, it's not really great on these levels and the characterization's not very good. Um, I don't think they go, oh my goodness, I can't believe we failed to stop it doing great guns at the box office. You know, the research is there. It's been there for a long time that critics do not impact box office. Um, our yes. role is very different in terms of mediating and a knowledge base and all these different things that come into play and different perspectives and opinions, which is why, as you said, you know, we do need a greater breadth of critic voices, especially in the top jobs. 100%. Um, but I think that's, yeah, I think that's kind of key, isn't it? That, that, that diversity and it means that 
It challenges critics in some ways, in a way that is good. But it still comes down to this whole thing of the concern, perhaps, and at the risk of sounding like a bit of an old fart, Ashanti. <laughs> um, you know, is there a concern, a valid concern, that all this sophisticated marketing, that you know, you mentioned there, all these kind of 4D sensational experiences and all these things that PRs can do to really kind of get influencers to get very excited? Yes, Is there a concern that younger audiences are being distracted from the actual merits of films themselves? Uh, I I don't feel this concern at all, having hung out with nieces, nephews, and of the very young generation, you know, people who are nine years old to like 12 years old, and talking to them after watching a film and the way they assess cinema, they actually go in for... But my my nieces and nephews are not, you know, especially the the younger ones, they're not influenced by the influencers because they, you know, one of them is not even allowed to have a mobile phone. At the most, he's allowed to go on YouTube, for example, but he has been, you know, taught to read from a young age, to understand, to delineate any kind of subject matter. He has debates with his parents about you know, topical issues. So he, for example, has the magic of the internet because they can go and look something up very quickly. They can find out where where an artist is from. They can find out details about that person. You can get a biog bio of somebody instantly mm. these days that we couldn't we couldn't do when we were when we were children. And they have a critical thinking that we did not have when we were their age. Is what I'll say. So when I talk to say my fifteen uh, year old niece or you know some one of one of them who's 25, I I sit there and talk to them and the way they'll assess something is so different to how we used to. And the parameters critics use is those old school parameters. They're not looking at how cute the Pikachu looked, (laughs) you know, and how every time he appeared on screen, most of the audience was smiling. They're not looking at how in The Mandalorian, you know, it it was the Grogu, the baby Yoda that people immediately responded to. And a whole load of people who never saw Star Wars suddenly were watching Star Wars because Mm. they made a very cute creature that people just thought, oh, you know, he appeared on the cover of Time magazine. You know, Grogu, this is not Pikachu. But, you know, interestingly, this is this is this is why why I'm saying that I am not worried about this aspect because I feel that kids these days are taken to art galleries from a very young age. When they watch something, they will make an assessment of it in a very different way from what a critic would. And if they never read that critic's assessment, it still is not going to going to affect it because of the way they communicate about these things in very kind of, you know, brevity is the key for them. So they will send a set of emojis to their friend who will then go and buy a ticket to go and see a film. And that's how it, things are evolving. And a lot of this is the autonomy and b- why blogging became so popular is that people said, I am fed up with trying to report to an editor who will never understand me. I'm just going to put my voice there and self-publish. And there's merits to this in some ways. You know, you have the confidence to do that. Great. But then also, what is the quality you're bringing? Is it actually high quality? And again, all of this is subjective, isn't it? You know, it's like I will watch Suzume and somebody else will watch Suzume. Both of us will have very, very different takes about the film and its content because all of this is so subjective, as is criticism in many ways because I will read three reviews and out of those I will only resonate perhaps with one of them. Yes, and I think that's the thing is it it does indicate how ultimately if we can just increase the diversity of 
um, opinions and resources, then we have to have faith in the ability and the motivation of people to access it. I mean, obviously, not all children get taken to art galleries and not all children will be growing up in households with in-depth conversations taking place around the table. But ultimately, I do appreciate what you're saying about that, that they come at it in a different way. And again, we we need to accept that rather than digging our heels in and trying to stick to the old parameters. <laughs> yes. Because it's kind of that's kind of a bit of a nonsense. Um, finally, <laughs> then, to round up, just because we you know, you talked about the Super Mario Brothers, and I know that you were on Channel Five yes. talking about that. And you ended up having to defend us critics, yes. didn't you? Yes, I did. It was it was so interesting that they had me in studio as well, so I couldn't run away at this point. But uh, I was asked that 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 question that we we all dread, you know, what is the relevance of a critic in today's day? What is the point of having critics when a film like this can make such numbers? And honestly, this film has taken such unprecedented numbers across the world. And I only had a few seconds. So I said, look, you know, in terms of character arc, every critic is going to be looking for one. And they would have tried to see the evolution of this character. With Super Mario, it doesn't have that. And I, I, I explained that that's how I felt that critics had their own value, because they're giving you a different dimension to what this film is from what the audiences are, are expecting. Just to see people's re- reactions when the music came on, for example, that's the IP, the intellectual property that works for Super Mario is way beyond anything that a critic... Well, well, I mean, I, sh- I should say, and this is something I'll put out to any critics listening to this, is to think about the other aspects of cinema and not just those parameters you've always looked at. And think about, you know, have I been immersed in this experience or have I not? There are other aspects to filmmaking and what draws audiences who want to see that big screen experience without being too cerebral about it. This is what critics should also think about when they're putting these reviews out, because I, I feel like this, the backlash fell on the critics. Elon Musk went and said critics are just disconnected, you know, from reality. And, you know, it just goes to show how the perception of the world around us and the way critics are looked at is so different now than it than it ever was because the critics are going out and writing these reviews not thinking who is this intended audience Ashanti Amkar there explaining the ways social media and its influences are shaking up the traditional world of film criticism That's almost it for this time. If you're enjoying Open to Criticism, do please rate it. Click follow and tap out a little Apple review for me if you would, or you can just tell a friend. You can also keep up to date on the podcast and related content on the show's Twitter and Instagram accounts at Open to Criticism, where two is the number two. Next week, my guest is film critic and film historian Pamela Hutchinson, who takes us back to the era of silent cinema and racy pre-code movies. We'll be discussing the influence of early cinema on the films that we value now and how we might deal with some of the problematic representations from that era. Someone once asked me, you know, as a feminist and as a feminist film critic, how can I bear to watch so much cinema from the 1940s because so much of what you'll see on screen might be quite sexist. And I think it's because I know that sexism exists. <laughs> and, you know, this is the way to make a feminist, make them watch things like Mildred Pierce, make them watch Stella Dallas, and then they'll become a feminist. Open to Criticism is written, produced and presented by me, Wendy Lloyd, with original music by Hamish Clark. Bye for now. 